then the glory and beauty of God must increase. Every moral problem you have is fundamentally the worship of an idol that you are unwilling to kill. God wants to help you. Do not say for one moment, this is just who I am. God would have us repent and seek his mercy anew and find in him liberty from those things that shackle us and cause us great misery and pain. Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know, and of whom you have heard it was said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess it because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire. On the day of the assembly... And at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly. From the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them from before your eyes. I lay prostrate 
before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down the mountain. At Tarbera, or I'm sorry, Tabera, also at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatavah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from that day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights. Because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage. Whom you have redeemed through the greatness. Whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say. Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them. He has brought them out to put them to your death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. This far the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, we ask even now this evening as we have read this section of your word that you might grant to us wisdom and understanding and humility That we might see that it is not our righteousness, but the work of a mediator who stands in the gap for us. So that you might show us mercy in the days when we deserve wrath. And that out of these eyes that now see how it is we have been made alive, we might seek after you all of our days, we ask in your holy and precious name. Amen. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it feels like a little bit of the same sermon that we got or the, certainly a continued theme from Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Israelites were called to remember. Deuteronomy chapter 9, they're called to remember, to remember, to remember, to remember that they themselves are not the instrument of their own deliverance, nor were they worthy to receive the mercy that was given to them by God. But they being like the nations, are different in one way. God chose them. And that's it. And that part and parcel, what is part of God's covenant of grace choice, is that even when his beloved people sin and fall short of the glory of God, there is one who is able to stand in the gap even in the midst of their rebellion and sin so that the anger of God against his people may be quieted. We need to understand that the God of the Bible who showed us mercy is not a pitiful, wimpy, 
God who can be persuaded by the whining efforts of his children. You know that kind of father? The father who, having heard enough, finally says, fine, do what you want. I give up. God is a God of justice and wrath, but he is also a God who is merciful and kind and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The question for us is, if God must judge sin, how did Israel escape judgment? Or at least some of them. It is because Moses spent 120 days of his ministry and his leadership with Israel, fasting and praying and standing before a holy God and a sinful people, pleading that God may have mercy on them. Moses, like David, both of them great sinners, were used by God to exemplify the character, not only of the kinds of leaders and rulers we need to have in the church, but more than that, they exemplify the kind of mediation we need to be called the children of God. And that is what I want us to focus on this evening under these three headings. The first, not because of your righteousness. This is what the Lord is saying to Israel. Not because of your righteousness. Secondly, God's unavoidable proof God's unavoidable proof. And then thirdly, lastly, driving us to repentance. Driving us to repentance. Let's look at this first point. Not because of your righteousness. The Lord time and time again says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it is not because you are righteous. Look at verse 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness. Verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Verse 6, it is not because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people, to put a little finer point on it. God is, through his servant Moses, being very clear about what Israel as a nation, as a people, is like. They are a stiff-necked, stubborn, unrighteous people. If it is not for their righteousness, it is in spite of their unrighteousness that God has chosen them. And so, before they go into the land, Moses is giving them a gospel pep talk. And he is saying to them, don't you dare go into that land and think for a moment that there is anything in there that hasn't been given to you. It's all been given to you. Every war you win, every grape you eat, every drop of honey, every drop of milk, all of the richness and the bounty of that land is yours because I gave it to you. And it is true for the church then as it is for the church and for you as it is today. If it were not for the grace of God, we would be like the nations of the earth. (gasps) Are you serious? You're a Gentile. Maybe some of you are Jewish by lineage. But all of us were, even at this time, we were the Amorites, the Jebusites. We were the ites that were in the land, 
that were worthy only of destruction because we were the kinds of people that were taking our newborn babies and putting them on metal altars until they melted in their arms so that we could somehow appease the favor of foreign gods. But you know what? Israel was no different. Or they would not be different if they were left to their own devices. It is not because of the righteousness of Israel, but it is instead because of the unrighteousness of the nations. And here we see in Deuteronomy chapter 9 this important principle that goes throughout Scripture that forms the very heart of our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. God is either gracious or God is judge or just. He is never unjust. God judged the pagan nations because they were worthy of his judgment. God showed mercy to Israel because he judged them in a mediator. He judged them through the work of the one with whom the covenant was made, which is why it's gracious. You and I benefit directly from the fact that God did not enter into a covenant directly with us, but through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, my goal is not to be clever and to hide the ace up the sleeve and to say, oh, at the end of the sermon, we're going to talk about Jesus. No, 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 no. It is only because of the work of Christ on our behalf, because the Father entered into the covenant with the Son, that you and I are counted righteous in his sight. Because what God saw when he found you in your sin was a little calf maker, a little idol maker. A one who dug little cisterns that can't, you know, maybe you're a little kid and you got one of those little plastic spades. You get very efficient at that as you get older. And by the time God finds you as an adult, you've got a backhoe of cistern well digging. And you're just digging, digging, digging for these cisterns that cannot hold water. It's just these pot marks of empty wells. It is not because of the righteousness of Israel. It is because of the unrighteousness of the nations. And attached to these concepts of grace and justice is the image of God as fire. Now, when Moses first saw God as fire, he saw the fire in the bush that was not burning. He saw Yahweh and a picture of Yahweh, how he would dwell among his people. He would... He would dwell with them as fire, but he would not consume them, but purify them. But as it related to the unrighteous, reprobate nations, those who are not of the elect, the family of God, he as fire would not purify, but burn up. It would not be a fire that takes the dross away from the precious metal of gold. It would be the fire that would burn up all of the stubble. That God is always fire. He is always a God of righteous perfection who must deal with us according to his righteous perfection. But among one people he consumes and another people he purifies. Israel needs to know this. Because Israel, like every other human that has ever walked the face of the earth that knows something of God, says... I know why God chose me. I mean, look at me, right? I've got money. I've got talent. I've got gifts. I'm, I'm handsome. I'm not speaking for myself. I'm saying this is what people say. I can see why God would want me for his team. 
course, in the New Testament, we read, God uses the foolish, the poor, and the weak things of the world. So congratulations, you weak, poor, and foolish things. We're all in it together. And what God will use us for is to shame the wise, the powerful, the strong. It is not because of our inherent quality. And so Moses tells Israel, remember, remember, remember Egypt, the staff, the plagues, the exodus, the Red Sea. Remember when God made the bitter water sweet, when he called forth water from a rock, when he brought manna and quail, when he moved aside those enemies in your path. It was a constant record of deliverance and provision. And not only does Moses want the Israelites to remember all of those times, but he wants all of those times to begin to inform the hearts of the Israelites to look at all of the things that God has done and to gather them in this collective understanding, a repository of mercy, so that when Israel is either afflicted by their enemies or tempted by the pagan nations and their idols, that they will run to God for help. Why does a child run into the arms of a parent? Is it because they remember, oh, I remember that time when dad was courageous? No, they go because they're seeking security because they know dad or mom can be trusted. In that moment, they're not recounting necessarily those occasions, but what God has done is he has built up in an entire canon, a list, a catalog of deliverances, and he wants Israel to remember those things. But do you know what Israel does instead? They make an altar, they make an idol to a made-up God And so Moses narrows his exhortation in this way. Not just remember what I have done for you, but remember what I could have done to you. Remember. Remember what could have happened. It's a warning as well as a reminder. And so Moses turns, he puts an even finer point on this exhortation, a a kind of surgical cut into the very hearts of the Israelites that this second generation might remember. Every piece, every step that I take across the Jordan is a gift. I don't deserve any of this. Every conversation you have with the saints in this building is an arrangement made by God that you do not deserve. Every word you hear uttered from the pulpit, every time you come to the table, you need to think, I had nothing to do with this. God has given this freely to me. Moses is wishing to establish in the heart of the Israelites gratitude and awe around this principle. It's the Roman 9 principle. If you're familiar with the Romans 9 principle, it is this. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And when did God love Jacob and hate Esau? Before any of them, either of them, had done anything good or bad. He elected Jacob and not Esau. Why? Well, what does Paul say? You don't get to ask that question. Now, you may say, well, that's just not fair. Paul says, okay, tough noogies. 
That's the way it is. Why don't you meditate and focus upon the grace and mercy that was shown to Jacob? Esau didn't deserve mercy, but neither did Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel. And by all rights, Esau should have gotten the birthright. Jacob stole it, and yet God had mercy to give it to him anyway. Not by Jacob's means, but by God's. Look at Moses. Moses knew that he would be unique and used by God to deliver his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. And so one night, he sees one of his fellow Hebrew slaves being beaten by an Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian. He's just doing what God called him to do, right? No. Not by the strength of human hands. God was and has already taught Moses this lesson, and he is teaching Israel this lesson. In fact, Moses learned this lesson the hard way when he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock because he lost his patience and he obscured the grace of God in that moment. Moses is reminding the second generation, there is nothing that you have done to warrant entry into the land. There is nothing that you can do to warrant God's mercy and favor. It must be freely bestowed. And so he is calling Israel not to be puffed up and righteous. In fact, what does that kind of perspective of self lead to? If you're walking around like this, what do they say? Pride goeth before the fall. If you're constantly looking at yourself in the mirror, remember Gaston, Beauty and the Beast? Nobody likes Gaston. He's a jerk. He's not the hero. He's the... He's the enemy. He's the one that needs to be taught humility, like the beast. In fact, the beast was once like Gaston, until he learned humility. And how was he taught humility? Well, like Nebuchadnezzar. He became a beast of the earth, and he crawled on all fours. And it was through that humbling exercise that he learned that it is not through the amassing of wealth and through a handsome appearance and the power that the world may recognize. No, as we turn that principle to Scripture, we see that it is solely the love and mercy of God. Paul says in Romans 2, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. God wishes Israel to see that all the good they possess has come to them as a free act of God's mercy. And unless Israel says, well, wait, 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 wait. Are you sure about that? God gives proof. God's unavoidable proof. And what is that? Well, while Moses is on the mountain, not eating or drinking. So God was supernaturally preserving his life because you can't not drink for 40 days. Moses did it three times. That's some serious commitment right there, guys. That is serious commitment. While he is on the mountain receiving the tablets, God's copy and man's copy, and he was coming down with these tablets of stone, he saw a, a kind of cultish gathering. Israel, Aaron, the one who is called to be the priest of Israel, was doing a satanic priestly duty. He was fashioning this idol and they were worshiping it. And then when Moses said to Aaron, 
Where did this come from? Remember what Aaron, a grown man said this, not a toddler. It just came out of the fire. <laughs> Moses looked at Aaron, I imagine, and went, you are a fool. Not just because of the stupidity of the excuse, but the priest of the people of God had led them headlong into the kind of behavior that God was going to bring wrath and judgment upon once they get to the land. They were being Egypt. It's the equivalent of being there on your wedding day. The groom is dressed. The bride is in her dress. And he looks out the door to try to get a glimpse of her. And she's making out with some other guy. What is happening? This is a sacred, holy day where God was entering to a covenant with his people. And he looks at them. And he looks at Moses and says, what is happening? Now, he knows what's happening. God does this all the time in the Old and New Testament. He challenges, he pushes those who are called in a position of authority and mediatorial work to do something lest he grow angry. God is not out of control. Remember that time? This happens sometimes when we, in marriages, have arguments or oftentimes when our kids want to say, well, you know, I'm pretty good. And you're like, well, remember that time? Remember that time? Don't really have much of a leg to stand on, do you? Israel has no right to say, I'm actually pretty good. God says, no. Remember the idol? And then Moses did what? He melted it down. He ground it up, and then he made them drink it. Now, what was the purpose of that? Is it like washing out someone's mouth with soap? It was certainly a humiliation. Moses was showing them this. Your God can't heal you, and your God, well, what's left of him, it's back there. Not to be too crass. It's just waste. It's just matter. There's nothing significant about your God at all. You can eat him. But the God of heaven and earth, he sits enthroned upon the heavens. He looks down upon the nations and he laughs. I made you eat your God. Moses is showing them the vanity of their idolatry. And this principle, that God through the Son has entered into a covenant with people who are sinners. The ones whom Christ loves, they're all sinners. You're not a beautiful bride. You're not beautiful at all. In fact, Paul makes this very clear in the book of Romans. While you were sinners, Christ died for you. This is the selfless, patient, kind, and gracious love of the Messiah that we see here figured and signed in Moses. On three occasions, Israel does this wretched disobedience. And on three occasions, Moses humbles himself before the Lord and he says to the Lord, remember the covenant you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you may say, that's hard. What's harder than that 
are the hours that Christ suffered upon the cross. And the cross was, from the Lord to the Father, the ultimate cry to Him for mercy on behalf of those for whom He was dying. And that echo of His gracious, eternal, efficacious, and sufficient death still reverberates through time so that men and women and children in every generation are shown mercy according to his sacrifice. Christ need do it but once. Moses had to do it three times, and it still didn't catch. It still didn't work. But Christ's blood, his death, this is the unavoidable proof that Moses gives to Israel. And you know what? There's a reason why we keep preaching Deuteronomy chapter 9, isn't it? Because we have yet to arrive at a full understanding and awareness of and a perfect application of the principle of Deuteronomy 9. And that is righteousness springs forth from mercy. And so where's your righteousness? Again, God is gracious. He is patient. He is kind. Every idol you have ever built, you build right before God. Think about that. That's pretty bold. And for every Christian that knows better, every idol that we have ever built, we build it right before his very eyes. And sometimes we're like, what you going to do about it, God? And we're sitting there and we're building it and we're bold in our sin. And yet he's kind and gracious. But he is gracious through a mediator. His kindness is provoked by someone who stands in the gap. And that is how this drives us to repentance, lastly. The mission of Moses wasn't just to deal with a bunch of knuckleheads who could not figure out how to simply wait upon the Lord. Recently, we acquired this new dog. And one of the things that we're trying to teach her to some success is not just sit and come, but stay. Stay is a hard one because the dog knows you have something in your hand. She wants what's in your hand, and she has no idea how long she has to wait until she gets it. And if you're a little bit cruel, you just say, stay. Stay. And she's just going, I can't wait. She starts to shake and drool, and she cannot wait any longer until she's, all right, I'm coming on over. When God came to Abraham and to Sarah, he said, I'm going to give you a son. Well, just wait 25 years. I cannot wait. And he came to Noah and he said, you're going to build an ark and it's going to rain a lot. 100 years. He came to Adam and Eve and said, your son will crush the head of the serpent. Just, you're going to have to wait about 4,000 years. What? But he does it. And he does it his way in order to show us, all right, we've tried your way. It doesn't work. Here is how it works. And every generation 
has to learn the same lesson. And parents, I know this is frustrating for you because you learn it and you say to your children, I made these mistakes, please don't make these mistakes. And then you see them moving headlong into calf building. Don't do it. And we seek to stand in the gap, but the only one who can do it is Christ. Christ is the only one who can stand before the Father and say, do not destroy them. And the beauty of the principle of a suffering Messiah is that even at the time of his resurrection, you have this guy doubting Thomas who came to Christ. He says, I just don't believe it. And Christ says what? Put your hands in my hands and put your hands in my side and feel where the spear And the nails were. And Thomas believed. He embraced the suffering Messiah. It is the same way for us. In order for us to be counted among the children of God, we must not only see our idols destroyed, but we must see the man who comes down from the mountain that is ultimately the mediator between God and man. Isn't Moses but it is Christ Jesus. And without him, we are nothing. Without him, we are lost. But because of him, this is what Moses says. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Remember your servants. Isn't this interesting? Time and time again, Moses says to Israel, remember your God. But then he says to God, remember your servants. We receive mercy, not because we remember, but because God has remembered. And through the Son, he has shown us kindness. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God.